Our text is John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I do not come to the world, but to, uh, I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we read in this text of those that hear your word, yet cannot understand it because their hearts are far from you. Father, when it comes to your word, our eyes and our ears are controlled more by our hearts than they are by our minds. Would you soften our hearts, draw us to yourself, that we might be teachable and obedient. Soften our hearts that your word might do its work. We pray these things in your son's name, and amen. amen. This section here, um, halfway through John 12, it begins uh, with the news that there are some Greeks who are 
seeking Jesus. Verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And if you think about that, actually just look up one verse and you see that um, what the Pharisees complained about is being confirmed right there. The Pharisees said in verse 19, you see uh, you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus' ministry is beginning to sort of spill over and attract people from all over, and this is what is um, provoking the Pharisees to envy. So now the Greeks are coming to hear from Jesus, to hear the gospel from him. And as the world is coming to him, as Jesus sees all these people coming to him, he is seeing the fulfillment of the prophecies of his life, and he's realizing that his ministry is sort of coming to a culmination. And, and it's in this chapter that he really senses that this is, we're now, at, we're now at the end. We're in the final week of my life. He says, uh, and, and you, can, you can tell that he feels the weight of it. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. He, um, if you go back just a chapter or so, we had Jesus experiencing the weight of Lazarus's mortality, and, and he was weighed down by seeing other people's pain and suffering, but now he knows that his own death is on him, and he says, now my soul is troubled. He feels it, he knows that it's coming, and he starts to announce it to everyone. Um, if you remember, go back towards the beginning of John, when he's... Um, Remember the, the, um, the feast at Cana, the wedding where he turns the water to wine. And when Mary, his mother, first comes to him saying, hey, they're, they're out of wine, he says to her, this is John 2, 4, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He knew then that this was not the time. And he says, my hour has not yet come. And you see that, but then all of a sudden in John 12, he says, now my hour is on me. And for the rest of John, he keeps saying this, my hour has come. So verse 23, the hour has come. Uh, go to John chapter 13, verse 1, the very next uh, chapter. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, uh, look at John chapter 17, 1. He starts his prayer. He says, Father, the hour has come. So the first half of his ministry, it's not time, it's not time. But now, from now until the end of John, the hour is on him. And he feels it, and it weighs heavily on him. I, again, you really sense, I think, the true humanity of Jesus. He was a true man, and the prospect of going through this death that is looming in front of him weighs heavily on him. Uh, so much so that we know, um, you see this in Matthew and Mark, that when he prays to God, he actually asks God to remove this. He says, basically, is there any way we could do this that does not involve me dying on the cross? He actually asked the Father to, to not have to die, but then he submits himself to the will of the Father. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So he truly feels the death that is coming that he's going to have to endure as a true man. Just the fact that he was God in the flesh does not mean that his death was somehow easier or somehow less of a deal to face. In fact, it was a far, far greater deal for him to have to face this. So he feels his impending death, but he understands that there's more to his death than just his death. He, he understands that his death is going to accomplish a lot more than just this difficulty that he sees in front of him. And he explains it with the image of the seed. Verse 24, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He says, I, I'm going to die and I'm going to be buried in the ground, but I'm going into the ground as a grain of wheat. 
And a grain of wheat is different than if you bury a pebble in the ground, you just bury a pebble in the ground. But if you bury a grain of wheat in the ground, you, you do so with an expectation of things to come. You, you do it with the expectation of a harvest to come. You do it with the expectation that that grain is coming back, and not only is that grain coming back, but when it comes back, it's going to come back multiplied and be so much more than it was when you first put it into the ground. It's a great image of what's going on with the death of Jesus, that this is a grain going into the ground. And what's really interesting, we don't really have the time to do it here, but um, this, is, this is Jesus understanding and unpacking for us a prophecy that began at the very beginning of Scripture and has been building throughout all of Scripture. Uh, in, in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve have, have fallen by disobeying God, and God arrives to give the curse, and he's giving the curse on Adam and the curse on Eve, and he gives the curse on the serpent. And when he does so, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. At the very beginning, God said, you've just fallen, but there's going to be a seed that will come from the woman. And it's really interesting, if you look at how the first couple chapters of Genesis are written, it's actually written in such a way as to really call attention to this promise of a seed. And you'll see this throughout Scripture, this constant reference to this seed that is coming. That's why we have such a fixation with genealogies uh, throughout the Old Testament, is there, there's this tracking of this seed that is to come. And Jesus now is finally that seed who is the fulfillment of this prophecy, the seed of the woman who's going to um, actually rise up after his death and rise up in a harvest so much greater than the one man that was put into the ground. So a seed goes into the ground in order to make much more of itself come back up uh, from the ground. Now, Jesus, as I said, he's, he's troubled by the path he has to walk. You see that again, verse 27. My soul is troubled. It's, it's weighing heavily on him. Um, and and uh, it's interesting. I still remember um, seeing the, the grave of uh, C.S. Lewis in Oxford. If you go and uh, you can find uh, his grave, and it's he and his brother are buried in the same grave. And, it, and you wonder, like, so what's going to be on C.S. Lewis's tombstone? And he just has this one quote that is from uh, uh, Shakespeare's King Lear. And it's just, men must endure their going hence. Which, which, which seemed like it's just kind of a, a stoic and kind of grim thing. Like, listen, you're going to have to face it. You're, you're going to die, and you have to be able to endure it. It's this, this sort of stoic ability to look at death coming and deal with it, because it's hard. Dying is, is just a really hard thing to do. And imagine facing death. Um, you know, I, I said earlier, the fact that Jesus is divine, there's a temptation to make you think that that would make his death easier. But imagine facing death with complete omnipotence, right? Um, imagine, imagine like, like every time, you know, have you ever been to the dentist when they, when they touch the nerve that hurts like crazy accidentally? Imagine going to the dentist appointment with perfect foreknowledge of what's going to happen, right? That doesn't make it easier. That makes it much, much harder. Jesus goes to his death with this perfect foreknowledge of exactly what will be done to him. And he has to face that. And he, but he is able to endure his, his going hence. He, he faces it. And part of the, the way he faces it, I think there's something really profound to learn from this, is that he understands 
that, that this death was the reason that he came into the world. And, and he steals himself for this death um, by turning his mind to the glory of God. All right, right? Go back again to verse 27. All right, um, my soul is troubled. It, it's, it's weighing heavily on him. And yet I know this is the reason I came here. For this purpose, I came to this hour. And then, and then listen to how he describes the purpose of this hour. Verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. He, he faces this and he steals himself for this by sitting there and realizing, okay, I'm going to go through great tribulation, but I understand that the purpose of this tribulation is to glorify the Father. And he says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father answers him, a voice from the sky. Um, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the, the thing I want you to notice is the way um, Jesus is no hypocrite here. He's, he's no hypocrite. And what I mean by that is, remember how, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, when, when Jesus would face a trial or tribulation um, that somebody else was enduring, and then people would say, "How explain what's going on? Because we would all have one explanation for it, and Jesus would have a very different way of looking at it. For example, you've got the man who was born blind in, in John 9. Um, and and the, the disciples say, you know, why was he born blind? And he says, it's not because of sin. It's not because his parents sinned. It's not because he sinned. It's in order to glorify God. All right? And I, I think I pointed this out at the time, that Jesus looks for the purpose, not the cause. He looks for the purpose, not the cause. When he sees a trial or a hardship, he looks for what is the purpose of this? Where is it supposed to take us? Rather than what is the cause? Who screwed up? Whose fault? Who should be blamed for this? Why, why did Lazarus die? John eleven four. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Why is this man dead? Again, it's in order to reveal the glory of God. You look for the purpose and not the cause. And the purpose is the glory of God. Well, that's really easy to say when you're interpreting other people's hardships, right? I'm going to tell you, you know, I know this is hard, but suck it up. It's the glory of God, you know, be pious and whatnot. It's really easy to say to other people. But now Jesus himself is sitting here facing it, and the weight is on him. But as I said, Jesus is no hypocrite. And he is going to display now the lesson that he's been giving in other people's hardships, which is to say, what is this for? All right, I'm going to face this. And the reason why is because I want to glorify God. He looks for the purpose and not the cause. So, so why is he going to Jerusalem? Why is he going to the cross? If we look for the cause... It would be the sin of all the nitwits that surround him now, right? Why does Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, for these people's sin. Um, for, you know, why, why do we have to go to Jerusalem? Why do we have to go on the cross? Well, Peter, well, well, James, well, John, well, Judas, right? I know, I know the reason why I have to go. I, I, know, I know the cause, but he's going to, again, um, think about the purpose. If there ever was a man who lived who was in a better spot to play up the martyr, it was Jesus, right? If there was ever somebody who could sit there and say, look how I suffer, and look how I suffer because of you and what, and what you did. You, you know, as a parent, how oftentimes there's this weird kind of impulse to like discipline through a sad face, 
Like, like, okay, do you see what you did? And do you see what that does to my face? Right? Do, do you see how you have hurt me? You have, you have made my life so miserable, and that is on you. Right? You, you are the reason for this. If there was ever a person who was in a position to play up that martyr sad face, it was Jesus. But he does not look for the cause. He looks for the glory of the Father. And he says, Father, I intend to glorify you with this. And the Father says, yes, you will, you will see that glory. You will receive that glory. Now, um, in, in verse 32, um, Jesus says this, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. He's trying to explain and unpack what it is that is going on. And he describes it in terms of, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up. And, and it's a cryptic saying. It's, it's, it's a little bit cryptic. And everybody, I mean, one of the things that I think you really get the sense of in this section is how much everybody's just really struggling to understand what is happening and what Jesus is saying and, and, and what, what all of this means. And, he, and I think he's kind of, um, he's adding to the, you know, the, the confusion by speaking a little bit cryptically, but, it, but there's a reason why he's doing that. But he says, I must be lifted up. We're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be lifted up. He's been saying for some time that he's going to be lifted up. John 3.14, you know, right before our John 3.16. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up, just like the way the serpent was lifted up. Uh, look at John 8.28. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then will you know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. All right? Not only am I going to be lifted up, you're going to be the ones who lift me up, but I will be, I will be lifted up. And then here again in John uh, chapter 12, he tells us that he's going to be lifted up. Now, um, John tells us, if you look at verse 33, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. So being lifted up means being lifted up and hung on a cross. And John explains that that is the interpretation. But the crowd doesn't get that, that interpretation, that explanation. And I think they're left struggling to understand what does it mean to say that he's going to be lifted up. Um, the, the people seem to maybe think that it, it means going away in some way. Verse 34 the people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They seem to think that he, he's describing himself going away. Maybe they understand that he dies, or maybe they think that he's going to ascend into heaven in some way. So when he says lifted up, they think it's describing him going away. And they say that doesn't fit with what we understand of the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to come and be inaugurated as king, and he's supposed to reign forever. Uh, Isaiah 9-7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Okay, so the Messiah is supposed to come, be inaugurated as king, sit on David's throne, rule over Jerusalem, and he's supposed to be there forever. So when you say, you know, we think you're the Messiah, we just had the triumphal entry, we thought we were kind of inaugurating you as king, and you say you're going to be lifted up, that's not our understanding of what the Messiah is supposed to do. So they're, they're confused, and they're struggling to make sense of it. Now, 
I think that there are a few themes that are kind of coming together here. And as I said, it's a very confusing um, section where you've got a number of things happening and it's kind of hard to figure out how they all quite um, fit together. And the fact that there are a few of these different themes, I think, adds to the confusion of the crowd trying to understand what's going on. On the one hand, you've got Jesus's clear um, uh, assertion that what they're all about to see is the glory of God. That, that this is all about revealing the glory of God. So much so that you actually have the voice of God speaking from heaven to, and the crowd overhears it, that God is going to be glorified in this moment. So one important theme here is that somehow everything that's happening is going to reveal the glory of God. Second, you have this kind of cryptic um, phrase in 32 where Jesus says, I will be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up. And then you have all of the people struggling to understand what is going on. Because this doesn't sound like the Messiah that they were expecting. Uh, and, and in verse 34, you have them say, you know, we, we don't understand how this could be. And so much so that by verse 37, although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Some of them are struggling with disbelief because they're so confused and they can't figure out how it all puts together. So you have the glory of God, Jesus being lifted up, and everybody standing around saying, I don't understand. I'm really, really confused. I don't see how all this works together. So Jesus then says, well, this confusion that you're experiencing, this is all just straight out of the book of Isaiah. This is, Isaiah foretold all of this. He foretold the Messiah. He also foretold all of the people standing around, scratching their heads, and being confused, exactly as you are right now. He, he um, Look at verse uh, 41. He, he quotes two passages from Isaiah, one from chapter 53 and one from chapter 6. And then he says, These things Isaiah said when he saw the glory and spoke of him. All right, Isaiah saw the glory of God, and he, and he described that glory. And what did that glory produce in the people who were listening to him describe it? Well, in, in chapter, um, you've got one quote from chapter 6 of Isaiah. Let's look at that one first. Um, it's Isaiah 6.10. Isaiah 6 is such an interesting chapter to read. It's one of like the best places of, I, I really, I think Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 are the two most exciting sections of Isaiah. Isaiah 6 is where you have that scene where, where Isaiah sees the throne of God and you have the angel saying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah like, um, you know, believing that he's going to die because he has seen the glory of God. And, and, and it's just this really, really powerful moment where he sees the glory of God starts in, in, Listen to chapter, um, sorry, chapter 6, verse 1. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. He, he was lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And then he describes the, the seraphim that are around him. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So he's describing this glory of the Lord that he gets to see. And that's when he says, you know, woe, woe to me, I am undone, verse 5. But, but then you, you go down just a little bit further to verse 10. And this is, the, this is the bit that Jesus quotes in John chapter 12. Verse 10, he says, make the heart of this people, actually, sorry, let me go back to verse 9. 
And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Okay, I just want to note a few things and we're going to try to put it all together. But Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord. He sees the glory and we see, he sees the glory of the Lord and the Lord is lifted up. He is raised up, he's lifted up. And the people, when Isaiah describes this glory, the people can't understand. The people can't get it. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. And actually this section of Isaiah 53, um, you might know it as the passage of the suffering servant where Isaiah prophesies in just very clear terms the, the coming crucifixion of Jesus. It's, it's, so, it's so clear that it's one of these texts that uh, Jewish rabbis in the first couple centuries of the, the church era really have to struggle to figure out how to interpret this in such a way that it's not so obviously being fulfilled uh, in the life and death of Jesus. So you've got this really clear um, description of the coming crucifixion of Jesus. But it starts in verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And just as you were astonished, uh, as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. And it, go, it goes on to describe this Messiah. And then, it, and then in verse 13, he says this. Sorry, I'm... I got a little bit confused. Sorry, again, verse 1 of 53. Got that wrong. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root, and it goes on to describe this Messiah. But again, you have this, you've got the glory of the Lord revealed. You've got the Lord revealed as someone who is lifted up, and you'll notice it's, uh, if you read the Hebrew, it's the same word, the he same Hebrew word again and again, nasa, this verb, which means to be lifted up. The Lord, he's lifted up, and, and it's high, exalted, he's lifted up, but everybody is looking at this Messiah who's lifted up, and his glory, they cannot understand it. It does not make sense to him. They cannot process it. They can't make sense of it. Uh, in both of these passages, then, the Lord appears lofty and lifted up. When Isaiah sees this, he sees the overwhelming glory of God, and when he tries to tell the people about it, they cannot understand. So do you see then, when you go to John chapter 12, why it is that John, or sorry, that Jesus would use these two sections of Isaiah to explain what is going on right now? The glory of God is being revealed. I'm about to be lifted up, and you can't understand. You can't get it. You can't make sense of it. Because the nature of my being lifted up is very different than the way you expect. My being lifted up and exalted is not going to be this great glory that you expect. It's going to be me hung on a cross. His being lifted up is him being crucified. Um, but remember, so remember if you go back a little bit, we talked about this a little bit before, that when Jesus gets on the cross, that's what it means for him to get on his throne. His throne is his cross, and his cross is him being exalted. His exaltation happens at his crucifixion, and he is glorified when he, by our understanding, is being humiliated. And the natural mind struggles to understand this great 
um, beautiful irony that God is unfolding in this story, that he's going to be humiliated in our eyes, and yet that's going to be him being glorified. So think about it, and, because this has been happening again and again in John. He's been helping us to get ready for this. We see a blind man. He sees the glory of God. We see a dead man, Lazarus, and a, and a room of people mourning and wailing. He sees the glory of God. We see a man humiliated on a cross. He sees the glory of God. All right? This is how God reveals his glory, and this is the context and the setting in which his glory is always unpacked for us. And I think the natural mind does not get this. The natural mind struggles to comprehend how that could be the case. Paul, Paul says, you know, in Romans 3, we quote this all the time in you know, our basic gospel presentation, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think there's another way of, of thinking about that or interpreting that, in that we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of understanding and comprehending the glory of God. His glory is so high, so lofty, so transcendent that we miss it all the time when it's all around us. As Isaiah said, we hear, but we do not understand. All right, we see, but we do not perceive. We, we see it around us, but we don't see the story that God is telling. Here, here's what I mean with this, and bear with me for a moment, a little bit of a, a rabbit trail. Um, if, I, if I ask for, um, you know, what is this, probably the single strongest argument against the existence of God? If somebody does not believe in God, you know, what, give me your, your intellectual case for why you disbelieve in the existence of God. And, and one of the answers that's probably most likely to be given is going to be the, the problem of evil, right? This philosophical problem, the problem of evil. How, um, and, and it, it's basically, um, if God is all good and all powerful, how can evil exist? Um, he's either not all powerful because clearly he can't do anything about it, or he's not all good because he appears to be okay with it and he's not doing anything about it. And, and, and usually when people um, are giving you the problem of evil, by evil they usually mean the problem of human suffering, all right? pain and the difficulty of suffering, the different things that we have to go through. All right? That's the problem of evil. Why is there this difficulty when God is in heaven and could at any moment rescue me from this great difficulty, right? If God is all-powerful, all-loving, all-good, he, he, should, he should step in and deliver me from these various trials that I have to go through. And the fact that I have to keep going through these trials and bad things keep happening, clearly that means that God must not exist. And so it's this supposed refutation of the existence of God. For us, for us, the ultimate goal seems like it should be to remove suffering, to remove difficulty, to remove hardship. All those things should be, should be gone. If I am privately imagining my ideal future, let's say I'm planning out my next five years in my ideal future, in, in my private imagination, that ideal future will always begin with me getting a huge chunk of money right at the beginning, right? Because it feels like that would just remove all of my problems. Um, it's only, like I promise you, it's only like five million because I'm not a greedy jerk. You know, it's just just five million, and I'd be just totally fine. That's after taxes, of course. So, um, and I will have tithed. I will have tithed on that. So that's after tithe also. My, my, my generosity is a lot like my wealth, imaginary. Um, 
But, but my, my ideal future, it's going to start with this great wealth that's going to come in my mind because it would seem to me that that would remove all of my problems. It would take care of all the things that are in front of me that are difficult in one way or another. And it seems like if God loved me, why would he not do that, right? If he loved me, why would he not just give me that, all right? He either, he doesn't love me, he isn't good, or he must not be capable of getting me the five million, Right? Those are the only ways I can feel to, I can try to explain why it is that those things are not happening. It seems like a refutation of the existence of God. Um, for some reason, we think that the existence of, su- of suffering is somehow a refutation of the existence of God. Like a God who is in perfect control would not allow it. But we see in Jesus someone who sees the suffering uh, that he's going to un- undergo as a stage for the revelation of the glory of God. He sees his suffering actually as a way for God's glory to be demonstrated and displayed to the world. The suffering of the cross, he sees as an exaltation. He sees it as him being lifted up and God's glory being put on display for the whole world at this moment that he undergoes extreme pain and agony. Being lifted up, being exalted, being uh, promoted in the way that Jesus is about to be looks very different than what our natural heart and our natural mind thinks it should be. Right? It always comes in this way diff- completely different than we expect. The funny thing is, I think that we all feel this in our bones. Like, I think we, I'm not saying anything that we don't actually know because I think we're quite conflicted on, on this kind of conversation. Um, I think we know this in, in our bones, and I think it's really easy to illustrate. Usually, when somebody gives me the problem of evil as an objection for the belief in God, I'll say, Okay, give me your three favorite movies. Just give me your three favorite movies. And, and it's weird because if you think about it for a moment, like when it comes to crafting a film, you are free from all kinds of narrative constraints. You can, just, you can just do what you want, right? You could have a movie that was just like somebody hopping from fluffy cloud to fluffy cloud with no sharp corners, you know, sliding rainbows, no, no, um, no difficulty, no trials, no anything, just a fluffy life of no pain or anything. You can make a movie like that and we and and okay so would you how what would you like to watch do you want to watch that or what are the movies that you like to watch what are the stories that you like to tell i asked them what are your three favorite movies and guaranteed it's something where lots of people die lots of people are hurt lots of people and and it's also lots of pain and anguish that is that is um afflicted completely unfairly it's not just like bad people get it. It's good people having somehow a trial and a trauma thrown into their life that they must now face. And why do you want to watch that story? Are you just a sicko? Like you just want, like to watch people hurt? And, and I guess there are people like that. But for the most part, the people, we, we want to watch those films because it's in that setting that real nobility of character is put on display far more so than in the movie with the fluffy clouds and rainbow slides, right? Nothing is revealed there. But in this one, all of a sudden, you see true nobility in a way that really moves you and is profound. And it's strange, but it's in the midst of suffering that real glory is put on display. And we know that. We know that innately, even though we don't like to admit it. We actually know deep down inside that true nobility is best on display in adversity. 
Why, why are we so moved by the old grainy photos of the men in the boats right before the Normandy Beach invasion? Right? Did you notice like um, we had, because of the anniversary of it, you have on Facebook, you just have all these pictures and, and you're so captivated by it and just staring at it because of the true nobility of it, right? There's something just really glorious about, about men who would face that. Think of, think of um, why is a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer or a, a Jim Elliott or a Corey Ten Boom so much more profound than that same quote from a pastor who has seen no suffering? Or no, relatively, right? Why, why is that so much more profound? It's something about in the context of that kind of difficulty, when faithfulness arises in the midst of that, it becomes a beautiful and profound testimony of the glory of God. True glory is radically different than what we imagine, right? It's, it's just very different than what we would, if I was given, you know, um, space, a page, 300 words, right? Uh, my ideal glorif- glorified future. What I come up with looks far more like the, the fluffy clouds. The story that God tells is so much more profound. It's not like a, a sweet uh, drink of Kool-Aid. It's a, it's a very profound wine that goes so much deeper and has so much more to it. Um, True glory is radically different than what we imagine. All have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We don't get it. It's something that is so transcendent and above it. Um, And so true glory is much richer than the cheap glory that we imagine for ourselves. We in our sin fall short, far, far, far short of the glory of God. But Jesus on the cross is the Messiah lifted up. He is exalted. He is lofty on that cross, but in a way we would not have ever expected, in a way that his audience at this moment could not comprehend that this could be the revelation of God's glory. And the incomprehensibility of this glory, it's a judgment on those that do not receive Christ by faith. Okay? The incomprehensibility, the fact that they can stand there and see the Messiah in front of them and not understand it, that's God's judgment on them for not receiving the Messiah in faith. But I would argue that there's a good kind of incomprehensibility as well. There's, the, there's a kind of incomprehensibility that happens when you do not receive the Messiah by faith. But there's a really glorious incomprehensibility that is, that is a good thing. 1 Corinthians 2 Paul, I'm looking at verses 7 and 9. Again, actually, he's quoting from Isaiah, um, just uh, the next chapter after chapter 63. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for they, had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So again, there's this glory that's coming The rulers of the sage, they don't understand it, and that's why they crucify Jesus. But Paul says that this is happening for our glory. And then he quotes Isaiah. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. There's a glory that God intends for your glory that is incomprehensible to you now. It is, it is above you, it is too big for you to grasp, but it is the glory that is Christ on the cross that is preserved for you in the resurrection that you can't get by, right now by your understanding, but you can receive it by faith. You have faith in Christ, and that glory that you can't get is reserved for you. Paul says the same thing in, in Romans 9 when he's unpacking the great mysteries of predestination, and he says, 
I should just turn there quickly. Romans 9. That he, might, that he might make known the riches of his glory and on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So the Jews that Jesus is speaking there and the Greeks who come to hear him, he says there is a glory that he is, that he is reserved in heaven that is, that is still to come, that's incomprehensible now. But it is, um, it is incomprehensible because it is so much richer and so much deeper and so much, uh, so much, so much richer than this, this sort of trivial glory that we come up with ourselves and imagine for ourselves. The incomprehensible glory of God then waits for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Messiah lifted up. We thank you for his suffering on our behalf. We thank you for the glory that it revealed. We thank you that this is a glory that is reserved for us. Would you make us faithful to keep our eyes on this glory in the midst of our trials and hardships? Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to be those that look to the purpose rather than the cause of our trials? May we in our marriages look to glorify you rather than to fault others. May we as parents be the kinds of fathers and mothers that see trivial trials in the home as opportunities to model our loving father rather than to be brittle, short-tempered, and exasperated. May we at work respond to hardship, difficulty, and the sin of others with the grace that can only come from someone who has their eyes fixed on you. And so we pray now as your son taught us to pray, saying, This meditation fits very well with what you've just heard. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And it goes on to say that this means that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. In every hardship, distress, tribulation, no matter the enemy, the challenge, we are more the conquerors. Christians do not merely endure, Scripture teaches, they conquer because Christ is in every moment with them, and God is working every detail out for our good. This is gloriously true for every child of God, but it's the kind of truth that has to be worked out every day. It's the kind of truth that has to be worked out moment by moment. It's easy to say. It's another thing to believe and act in. Faith clings to this promise and proclaims it in and to every difficulty, every hardship. When there's tension in the family or hardship at work or sin to confront or confess or calamity that befalls you, your answer must be in that moment, God is here. God is here and he is doing good. Christ is with me here so that I might conquer. Or if you look out at the world around you and you see the insanity and the tyranny of unbelief and perversion on every street corner, look with faith and see God at work even there weaving an unbelievably good story and thank him for putting you here in at this moment in the story so that you might win in order to succeed for his glory. All of this means that Christians must have a far bigger view of God and a far smaller view of their own understanding or plans. God's plan is better. God's way of winning is far better than anything we might come up with. Nothing can separate us from his love. Therefore, we are in his love now. 
in every detail of our circumstances. And these gifts of bread and wine proclaim this to us. He has sworn by his own life, by the body and the blood of his son. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you that you have all things in hand. And thank you that you are determined to display your glory, not only through your son, Jesus, but even in us and in the church. So seal that determination to us now, so that it may go deep into our hearts, to our bones, so that our instincts may be faith in you. And so we thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory is one of those things that just makes you say, wow. That's what glory is. Your mouth is just shut or gaping wide open, and you just, you just know, you can't explain it. Which is why our imaginations, if we were to write our stories of glory, they would be so boring, really. Uh, we, we can imagine some, some ways in which maybe you'd say that would be awesome, but it would get old really fast. And so God is writing a story that every mouth is going to gape open. Every mouth is going to be shut, every knee is going to fall down, and everyone is going to cry out, Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of glory. That's what he's doing, and that's what he's doing in you. That's what he's doing in your story. He's writing that story, and he put you here in this moment so that you might shine in that. So trust your Father. He knows what he's doing, and receive his blessing now. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his counts upon you and grant you his peace. And amen.